well, well. If it isn't Michael Sokolowski, queen slut of the contradance scene. Oh, my God. Um, <sighs> how are you enjoying dog life there? Oh, look at him. <clears throat> how am I enjoying dog life? I love it. He's very cuddly. He's everything I ever dreamed. Yeah. Obviously, yep. it is hard. You know, he's a rambunctious little puppy. He chews stuff up. He has accidents. We have to walk him so much. I'm walking a lot these days. Well, that's not terrible, I guess. No, it's not terrible. It's just like, you know, my whole day is sort of dictated by like every four hours or so I need to walk this dog. So I need to plan everything in increments that work with that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I love it. He's the sweetest. He just is a big old cuddle bug. He's wonderful and perfect in every way. So beautiful. I know. Majestic. Majestic little doof. Michael. Mm, yes. Good morning. Mm, good morning, yeah. Welcome to a special morning edition of Hi, How Are You? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's the morning. That's right. Hi, how are you? Oh. Grunge Girl and I had a Black Friday pizza. Mm, as is traditional. I feel like it is. It was good. It's nice to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm just, like, looking at your dog. Yeah, he really wants to know what we're doing. He really wants to lick this microphone. <laughs> oh, so cute. I know. Tell me how I'm doing. How are you doing? Yeah, how am I doing? I don't know. It seems like work is running <sighs> you ragged. You think so? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Is that true? Maybe. Is the tech bubble bursting, Michael? Tell me as my inside tech reporter. Oh, uh, no. No, I don't think so. Is there a tech bubble? What's a bubble? What is a bubble? Oh, boy. Wow, you're asking questions today, aren't you? This is a goddamn podcast, Michael. Yeah, it's true. I, I don't know. Tech bubbles, you know what bubbles are, right? It's just when... Uh, yeah, they're like you make them with soap. Yeah, you make them with soap, and, you know, <laughs> the bigger they get, it's like, you know, fed by greed, um <laughs> mass greed you know uh-huh okay and uh yeah but i don't know i don't think this doesn't seem bubbly these bursting tech companies it just seems like bad management i tell you what is bursting what is bursting twitter seems to be bursting yeah every time i tweet an episode i'm like do people still tweet should i do this but i do because it's like whatever it's just a podcast episode but yeah it's, it's kind of like the rapture happened Right. <laughs> exactly. It's like everyone has been spontaneously absorbed from Twitter. And I'm like, who's still here? Is anybody out there? Uh, you know, if the rapture comes on Twitter or in the real world, that's exciting. <laughs> you know, at least it's something happening. You know, it's yeah. an opportunity for change. <laughs> that's the thing. Nothing is really happening. Right. How's your spiritual ennui? Oh, it's I'm I'm struggling with the Judaism. Yeah, unchanged. Unchanged, unchanged. I was contemplating this idea the other day. Who's going to be the next Martin Luther or Shabbatai? Mm, right. Who's going to be the next significant religious figure? And not even who, but like, where is that going to come from? Mm-hmm. And my gut tells me that it's actually probably going to come from Orthodox Judaism. Interesting. Yeah. Why? In my mind, I imagine those people emerge from, like, the boiler rooms. 
Well, this certainly fits Gershom Sholem, famous Jewish historian of mysticism's theory of basically mystics. Basically, Gershom was of the opinion, Gershom, my good buddy Gershom, um, was of the opinion that true mystics have to originate from within basically the most sort of normative part of the religion because true mysticism is basically becoming iconoclastic for the sake of the values inherent in the system. So like yeah, yeah. breaking Judaism for Judaism's sake. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that which that you could sense. say, like, for instance, one great example of what you're talking about would be like Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, the creator of the Jewish renewal movement, who came from an Orthodox background. I mean, obviously he's not he's not a Shabbatai Martin Luther levels, which I also just think that has to do with like how media and like how how our culture operates nowadays is not as prone to iconoclasts. Yeah, we don't really get that right now. But yeah, I mean that would definitely match your your gut feeling that you're talking about. Not that like I feel like I need to be part of that stream, mm-hmm. but it is a strange feeling to feel like I'm on like a dying is a dramatic word, but I'm on like a weird wisp of Judaism that I don't feel like is going to go anywhere. Interesting. And that's okay, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just a thought. I, I don't necessarily believe the thought, but it's just an interesting thought to ponder. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said in response. I think all new isms, all newer isms, for instance, all new Judaisms don't feel like Judaism to the first generation of people doing them and inherently feel like wisps. I think when the rabbis cooked up the Talmud, you know, when when the Baal Shem Tov cooked up Hasidism, it felt like equivalently a fad. Yeah, but th- what those people, at least in my, you know, mythological perception of them, have going for them is they're from, like, the most normative, like you were saying. What, mm-hmm. what uh, who, who were you saying said that? Gershom Sholem. Oh, Gershom Sholem, yeah, is the person who, who had that idea about mysticism in his book, Jewish Mysticism and Kabbalah. Yeah. I hear that. I mean, I think that's part of the project of Queer Talmud as a whole is to, like, give people the ability to come more from that. I mean, no one can change their background, but, like, part of the project of Queer Talmud is to allow people to be grounded in the normative texts of Judaism. Anyway, this is a whole other discussion. (laughs) No, I feel like it's related to what we're going to talk about because it's, like, where you come from and and the context you're in— is a little inescapable and there's only so much you can do with it. Mm-hmm. And that can be like a like a beautiful limiting quality or it can be a tragic reality. And We'll definitely talk about that. Yeah, I feel like that just really gets into it. But anyway, I've just been mulling <sighs> on that. Yeah, mole baby mole. Mole, 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 mole. Judaism, frustrating. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Very frustrating. Who'd have thunk it? Here's a side note, off the pod side note. I was just passively in the background checking our numbers. Apparently, uh, November was our highest listenership month so far. Well, I don't think that's going to be uh, off the pod. I think that should be on the pod, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, because why? Because I'm going to talk about it a little bit. Oh. <laughs> okay, we had like a lot of listens. Yeah, we had like double our usual listenership. I don't know how good SoundCloud stats are. I know, I think SoundClouds are actually like some of the worst i'm gonna check our spotify ones i won't say where but we got a lot of listens from a peculiar location Mm -hmm. and i looked up this location 
because we got like a lot of listens from a location where it just seemed very strange. And I mm-hmm. looked it up and it's associated with like um, Jews for Jesus kind of. Like that seems to be the only mm, Jewish right. we community. We talked about this a little bit. Yeah. So I'm not going to call you out because I don't know. Maybe there's just one enthusiastic listener is trying to break out of the seems to be a pretty conservative community out there. But mm-hmm. I don't know what the deal is. Or what would be even funnier is if they're listening to our pod and either blaspheming it or really into it. Oh, now that would be quite a twist. Is that how you say it? Blaspheming? Blasphemizing? I think blaspheming is right, I think. So if you're out there, Jews for Jesus, listening to us, we love you. We we are not sure what to think of you. We're not sure what to think of you. Thanks for thanks for listening to the show. Thanks I suppose. for listening. Yep, yep. Wild. Yeah. Wild. wild twist of fate. Anyway, what were you gonna say about it? I don't know. It just said it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. It's pretty cool. You've single handedly like <laughs> yeah. double the listenership of our pod. Right. You know what? We'll take it. We'll take all listeners. Anyway, mm. how am I, you ask? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I do. I do. Uh, I'm pretty good. Obviously, dog life is dogging along. My boyfriend's mom gave us our Christmas present early, and it's a giant TV. Oh. Here, I'll show it to you now. Mm. Well, it's a big TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a big-ass TV. She brought it over yesterday. I mean, it's great, you know, playing my video games on a big-ass TV. A very sweet surprise from her. What else is going on? My boyfriend and I have been playing uh, as a as a couples activity, playing a little nightly 30 minutes of the tabletop role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade, which is a very oh. cute thing that's happening in our life. I don't know anything about Vampire the Masquerade. It's like Dungeons and Dragons, but vampire stuff. But yeah, it's just very cute. He's like... Uh, guiding the little campaign it's a very sweet cute little activity we have going on what else is happening in my life well you know i'm sleepy waking up early i'm you know not grumpy about judaism at this time it's fine it makes me so grumpy that you're not grumpy about Judaism. <laughs> I mean, I'm grumpy about like the state of Judaism as a whole, probably, I would say. like, uh, But as far as the role of Judaism in my own life. What's wrong with the state of Judaism? Judaism seems to be doing just fine. No, Michael. Problem one, Zionism. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Look. You're never going to, you know, you just got to build a coalition with all the other Jews who aren't Zionists if if you're not into that. Working on it. Okay. All right. Working on it. I just meant. I'm I'm not grumpy about its its personal role in my life. Oh, it's doing fine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean every so often I go through a little crisis about whether Talmud is actually as good as I think it is. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know? So I'm either freaking out about whether Talmud is actually good or I'm like in one of the few moments of being like, no, it's good. And right now I'm in one of the few moments of being like, yeah, it's good. It's actually good. Okay. So, All right. That's good. Yeah. So one of us needs to be there at any given time. <laughs> My recent like little nugget of why Talmud is good that I've been chewing on is just like, I think one of the reasons the methodology of Talmud study that I use and have been trained in and that informs this show. One of the reasons it's good is because it's inherently a mindful experience because part of studying Talmud is contemplating how you know 
what you know when you read a text. For instance, in a in a Svara style Talmud class that looks like explaining how you derived that each word means what it means and how you decided on their relationships to each other. And when we're forced to interrogate how we know what we know, one, it develops, I think, a reflex of, I'll say, like holding our own convictions lightly, which I think is very like a healthy approach to develop spiritually, like holding our own narrative of the world lightly. And two, it is like necessarily a mindful process because it forces self-reflection, forces us to like become aware of our own processes of cognition. And I think that is good. I'm into it. So coming to that realization has gotten me into the swing of being like Talmud is actually good. So you're talking generally or just right now in this current yeah, this current, that's like a recent upswing, yeah. formulation of thought that has like gotten me into a, a sweet spot. Mm, do I want to go down this rabbit hole? It just reminds me of the question I've been pondering is like, why has Judaism survived? Mm-hmm. Right. From a historical perspective, not from mm-hmm. like a God divine chosen people kind of stuff. Uh-huh. I was talking with a friend about this. And he said to me, out of all the ancient Iron Age cults, Jews were the ones that wrote stuff down. Mm -hmm. Or at least preserved what they wrote down. I mean, besides Tanakh, Talmud is is the biggie that was written down. Mm -hmm. That seems to perpetuate Judaism. Like, is it the substance of the content that propels Judaism forward? Or Mm -hmm. is is it the fact that the content exists at all sure never mind no i'm just trying to understand i'm just trying to understand like does it matter what the talmud says right or does it just matter that it says something does it just matter that it exists well this gets back to not to make our show so self-referential but this gets back to what we talked about at least my personal theory of this gets back to what we talked about in our last week's episode when we talked about sacred places Mm -hmm. um and just that the content maybe could have been anything at one point, but the content has acquired its sacredness through centuries of attention. Mm-hmm. Written word as sacred place. Wow. Yeah. Think about oh, it. Okay. I mean, this is what Daniel Boyarin talks about in his book, his wonderful book, A Movable Homeland. Daniel Boyarin noted, I'm going to say at least non-Zionist Jewish academic possibly anti-Zionist. I don't remember what his like personal identification is. Anyway, he defines diaspora as an act of cultural co-location in which the member of a diasporic community is both a part of the culture where they are and a part of some other culture, which transcends location. And for him, the Talmud is sort of the network that facilitates the secondary cultural location of Jews. So. Jews are, for him, potentially, part of one culture wherever they are and part of a secondary culture. And that secondary culture, that secondary homeland is Talmud. That's interesting. I want to ask him, like, what about secular Jews that Talmud is not, like, really a direct part of their lives? I mean, I think he was writing this about historical Jews, not as a modern take on modern culture. Also, it's probably a gross oversimplification of his work, because I just, like, read this book and I'm now giving, like, a short book report on it. So, like, I'm sure I'm not giving a great report, but I think he was speaking historically and how those conditions inform us today more so than, like, 
this is how things definitively are now. Yeah. Well, this is all just sort of reminds me of the episode that we're going to talk right. about. Right. So, today. we should probably just talk about the episode. So, today we're talking about Russian Doll Season 2, Episode 2. Yes, we are. Great episode, I thought. So good. Here's what happens in it She wakes up as her mom. She has, last episode, participated in the theft and loss of the Krugerrands, famous Krugerrands. Mm-hmm. And her grandmother slash mother comes in and yells at her a bunch in both English and Hungarian. It's basically like, you're a piece of shit, you're the worst daughter ever, yada yada. We learn that maybe they're not, the Nazis like stole all the rest of their property and put it on a gold train. Nadia sort of has this attitude of like, eh, like it's going to be fine. I'm time traveling. Like I'm old hat at this now. Like anything is possible. Yep. Once again, back up to her old bullshit, feeling like there are no consequences to her actions. Yeah, yeah. But this time, like, her lack of appreciation for consequences is, like, uh, created by her supernatural experience instead of undermined by it, which is interesting. So she wants to find Chez, because Cesare Carrera has stolen the Krugerrands. That's right. And so she goes back to the Guardian Angels guy who helped her at the subway station and is like... Can you help me find Chez? And he's like, I don't know. It'll take me a couple weeks. I feel like they're setting up a romance there a little bit. We'll see. I don't get that vibe, but I'm curious about it. Okay. All right. You're doing a very good job not revealing that you know everything that's going to happen in this show. It's quite challenging. So she's like, you know what? Fuck that. She goes back to the present. And when she gets back to the present, she's going to find Cesare. But first, Maxine old BFF texts her to come to the hospital because Ruth is getting out of the hospital. But then it turns out they already got Ruth back to Ruth's house. So she goes to Ruth's house and Maxine and Lizzie are there taking care of her. And they have a bunch of really great dialogue. Basically, Maxine is like, why weren't you here taking care of Ruth? Nadia does something really shitty where she's like, why are you chasing Ruth's ambulance? Which is like, Bitch, Maxine is here taking care of your loved one. But Maxine is like, yeah, I was. Well, she says this great line, fetishizing death is not incompatible with genuinely caring, which I think is a great comeback, which is like, at the end of the day, Ruth needed to be taken care of. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether she did it for right or wrong reason or a mixture, Ruth needed to be taken care of. And Nadia wasn't there because she's fixated on the past. Reasonably so because she's being time traveled. Yeah, she's choosing to time travel. She's giving exactly. the option. She could be choosing to be present with Ruth instead. She's trying to fix the present by time traveling, but in doing so is neglecting fixing the present through the normal means that one does, which is just living and taking care of the people in your life. Right, exactly. And she's in denial about the severity of the problem with Ruth, who had to get a bunch of tests about a lump. Yep, yep, yep. It's interesting that like the motivation here is the Krugerrand, the money. Right. Well, I think she thinks if she found the Krugerrands, then maybe Ruth's life would be different. She wouldn't be in this situation. Once again, she's in this, like, she's not really believing that what's happening in the present is even real because she thinks she can change it in the past. So she's like, whatever's happening to Ruth, I can just fix it by finding the Krugerrands, I think. Which becomes very relevant in the next scene. She goes and finds Chez in the present who's a relatively polite and clearly very poor old man. And she's like, where are the Krugerrands? He's like, if I had the Krugerrands, would I be this poor? And he's like, listen, the Krugerrands are a Coney Island 
which is a saying in his family, a Coney Island is something that would have made everything better if only it did or didn't happen. Yeah. Very relatable. A lot of Coney Islands in my own life. That was a good line. He tells the whole story about his dad got polio because he went to Coney Island and picked up polio there. And if only right. they hadn't gone to Coney Island. I think that's even mm-hmm. the name of the episode. Yeah, it's Coney Island, baby. I mean, that's what's driving Nadia. Getting the chance right. to do the if only over again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So she sees on his mantle a picture of him in a squash outfit at a gym in New York, which he looks damn cute in. <laughs> Um, and is like, okay, I'm going to go to the squash gym and accost him. So she gets back on the time travel subway and she goes to the squash gym and she waits for Chez. Everyone makes a lot of jokes about how Chez fucks crazy chicks. Basically, she learns from Chez that they hooked up again when she was not her mom. So, like, historically, they hooked up again after he stole the Krugerrands, and she got them back, but now she doesn't know where they are. Say that last part again. Just Nadia's mom. Yeah. Not possessed by Nadia, just normal Nadia's mom. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucked Chez and got the Krugerrands back. And then Nadia's mom, as Nadia, came back, but she doesn't know where the Krugerrands are because her mom self hid them. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Very sensible storytelling. So she has to go find where her mom took the Krugerrands. First, she realizes she bought a car, an Alfa Romeo. Very 80s, very fabulous car. Very nice car. She goes back to her apartment to realize that they're throwing her stuff out. We meet Delia here, who's a friend of her grandma's, who's helping her stuff get thrown out. And also, we finally meet young Ruth, who I forgot is Annie Murphy, who's fucking incredible, both in general and in this role. It was a very powerful, very powerful 80s New York real working girl in real yeah real real cool real cool definitely yeah delia her mom's friend is like you show no respect to her survival to her miracle nadia's like we're ashkenazi choose not wizards it's right, just right, right. gold which is funny for her to say since she's magically time traveling she takes the car back to the dealership to return it and discovers that she's named after the alfa romeo saleswoman who apparently her mom used to come visit all the time which she's quite disappointed by but i thought was very cute they return the car they get some money back and it's mm-hmm. money it's not gold so they're like right. okay i didn't as my mom didn't pay the mom didn't you know what i'm trying to say yeah, they, they yeah, didn't yeah. pay for we the know. car in gold they paid for it in cash so we must have gotten cash from somewhere so let's go to the i guess the pawn shop because there's well, just first one. they check the trunk and find there's a bunch of furs in there oh yes 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 and then they i guess trace the furs back to the pawn shop gayest pawn shop in the history of pawn shops. Yeah. I honestly kind of love these people. The pawn shop people. She doesn't have enough money to get all the Krugerrands back. And she sort of has a little bit of a breakdown. She's like, if my mom doesn't have these Krugerrands, she won't make it. Which to me was like very throwback to season one where she's all about her survivor's guilt. And thinking if she had done something different, she could have saved her mom. So that's like a real link between seasons. And Ruth pawns her wedding ring from her dead husband to get all the Krugerrands back. And as they leave the pawn shop, people are like, Hail Satan, which I thought was a great touch. Yeah, that's very funny. (laughs) That they're like, 
gay Satanists who run a pawn shop. After that, they go to the bar, and Nadia's like, thanks so much for pawning your wedding ring. You didn't have to do that. That was, like, too big of a sacrifice. Too big of a sacrifice. And Ruth's like, no, like, that's what life is about. It's not fair. Sometimes you sacrifice stuff. And this wedding ring is just, like, a promise from a dead man. Right. And then Nadia's trying to get her to invest in stock and quit smoking. And Ruth is like, please just be present with me here. Again, very big theme of this when she's in the past she's thinking about the future when she's in the present she's thinking about the past you just gotta be in the moment yep but she can't do that Mm yeah she -hmm. goes out to a phone booth and leaves herself aka her mom a message which is a big therapy mood where she like says everything she would say to her mom if she could which is like just a straight up therapy exercise yeah she did the therapy exercise then she goes back on the train with her bag of gold Mm-hmm. And she sees through the window Alan on a train going the other direction. Yes. And she gets up to look at Alan and try to say hey through the window. And then when she turns around, her bag is disappeared. And she's freaking out. Unclear if her bag was stolen by time or by a person unknown at this time. Mm-hmm. But it's all been for naught. Now I'm wondering if when Nadia is in the past, her mother is in the future being oh chloe seven years out there running around running around being Nadia. yeah what i want i just want a whole series about ruth only please because ruth is like so wise and so great and like wise while still being a fully developed character which is i feel like so rare in movies and tv for someone to be sort of like the good one while also being like a, a fully rounded human being yeah, I think the, the show does a good job of making her a three-dimensional character, even though she's not the main focus, you know, at least yeah. in the first season. Yeah, they should do a spinoff called Better Call Ruth. She's a therapist. It'd be perfect. <laughs> oh, they probably would get sued if they called it Better Call Ruth, but... <laughs> mm, I'm sure they could work out a deal, you know. All right, Pine Cole, what'd you bring? Oh, my God. I tried so hard to bring so much. Yeah. I tried so hard, and what I brought was was a lot of what I said in the beginning of the episode. Ah. There was a lot of this dialogue that was in there where it's like you could have read it as, who are they talking about? Are they talking about Nadia? Are they talking about Nadia's mom or Nadia's grandma? All of these things that they're saying about a particular character could be related to all three of them. And mm-hmm. and they even make reference to like epigenetics and nature versus right. nurture and stuff like that. Right. And then Nadia says nature versus nurture is fake because it came from Francis Galton, who was a eugenicist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said that, which I thought was an interesting line. It made me think about what I was saying earlier about like the next wave of interesting new Judaism is going to come out of you know, Orthodox Judaism and, mm-hmm. and how we don't, how I am not in that world. And, and like my context dictates so much of my life and Nadia, who she is and how she's behaving is, I feel like dictated by who her mother and grandmother was and mm-hmm. how she's fucking up in this season is similar to how her mother fucked up with her. And right. Nadia even says like the grandma, she calls out, her grandma in the first opening scene and says, you know what? You were like awful to my mom and right. in this particular way. So like, what do you expect? Blah, 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 blah. And it was a throwaway line. But yeah, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, kind of the limits of free will in that way. Mm-hmm. I went hunting for 
interesting ideas about free will in Judaism and, you know, the limits of free will. At least in the rabbinic texts, there are all sorts of arguments for the existence of free will. Right. But I had trouble finding, you know, information about the limits of that free will. How much can you actually do? There was this one midrash I did find where God talks to the angel Lila, I think, or Leah, the angel that controls conception. And God says to this angel, I control everything about what happens to this fetus. You know, Mm -hmm. this is all happening like moments prior to conception. Right. Which is totally weird. But Right. Very horny of God to do. And God's like, I choose if they're going to be tall or short or fat or skinny, rich or poor, pretty or ugly. Mm -hmm. All of these attributes. But the only thing I don't control is if they're going to be good or bad. Right. That's their choice. I don't know. Maybe that's the actually the answer to my question. There are the limits of free will. Like you really don't have control over so much in your life. Mm-hmm. I feel that that's like a, a bit of a tragedy, and I feel Nadia struggling with that and repeating these mistakes and being trapped. You're really reminding me of Rabbi Akiva's take on free will, which I think we've discussed on the show before, which is everything is foretold and also free will is given. To me, I think it means like it's possible that everything is going to happen the way it is no matter what. And we're still morally responsible for all of our choices. I don't know. As any good show does, it takes what's happening in your life, right? Mm -hmm. And throws it back in your face. Right. And so it mapped very cleanly onto like my frustration with Judaism right now. Right. So do you feel like, are you saying you feel doomed to spiritual ennui because you weren't raised Orthodox? I think it's more complicated. Yeah, partially mm-hmm. but also no i think it's like i'm doomed. but also because of other things i think i'm doomed to spiritual on ennui because of like the moment that we live in just in general mm, interesting in 2022 i think it takes a lot of work to not have spiritual ennui for sure right now and mm-hmm. i think i don't know you know grass is greener but i think a lot of the particular flavors of mental torture that we experience may not exist in other contexts in the past or in other places but i don't know maybe that's wishful thinking yeah i don't know either but i will say even contained within your own ennui there's the possibility of like you can still potentially do the work you know to try to escape that ennui or to try to transform it into something else Yes, yes, you could do that. And work work. sucks, even if it's work for something as great as, like, a spiritual awakening. It's still work. I want to unionize this work somehow. (laughs) We need to unionize against God. Okay, well, let me bring what I brought. So I, when I watch this episode, I think we're on similar wavelengths, but I was thinking about ancestor worship and ancestor divination, because I feel like both of those things are, like, almost happening in this episode and in this series that she's like basically consulting the dead in a certain sense, like especially in the case of her mom, but like also just in the sense that like she's consulting versions of people who don't exist anymore. And then I found this really cool story that I think is very relevant um, from Avodurabinatan. So there's a story of a certain saint who gave one dinar to a poor person during a time of famine and his wife gave him shit about it. So he went and slept in the graveyard on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, 
and heard the spirits of two dead girls talking to one another. And the first one said, my friend, come and fly across the world with me and we'll see what disasters are coming. And the second one said, my friend, I cannot go because I'm trapped under this thicket. So go and tell me what you see. And she went and came back and said, my friend, did you hear anything behind the curtain about what disasters are coming? And the girl said, I hear that hail will strike on anyone who plants in the first quarter of the year. And so the saint went and planted in the second quarter, and hail struck everybody else but did not strike him. The next year, he went and slept in the graveyard again, and he heard the two spirits talking again. The first one said, come, let us fly across the world, and we'll see all the disasters. And the second one said, didn't I already tell you I can't go because I'm trapped under a thicket of reeds? So go and tell me what you hear. She came back and said, my friend, did you hear anything from beyond the veil? And the other ghost said, I heard that a crop disease will strike anyone who plants in the second quarter. So the saint went and planted in the first quarter. Crop disease came to the world. Everyone else's crops became diseased, but his did not. He told his wife the story. One day, the saint's wife got into an argument with the mother of one of the dead's girls. And the saint's wife said, come, I will show you your daughter trapped under a thicket of reeds. The next year, the saint went and slept in the graveyard, and he heard the two spirits talking to one another. The first one said, come and let us fly across the world, and we'll hear what they are saying beyond the curtain. And the second one said, my friend, leave me be, for the things we have spoken between us have been overheard by the living. So now he doesn't have advice to protect his crops anymore from disaster. Because his wife. Yeah. Fucked up. Told tales out of school. Yeah, this made me think of our tale because I feel like Nadia basically goes on this almost like back and forth, like the spirits. And she's like, okay, I'm going to go back and see about the dinars. Okay, here's what I need to change. I'm going to come to the present and get some more information. And then I'm going to go see what I need to change. And she does all this like consulting, basically, Mm -hmm. with the spirits of the past to figure out what to do. And she finally gets her money she gets her krugerrands back and then on the train back i chose to interpret it as like time protected itself it prevented the chain of causality from being broken Mm -hmm. by disappearing the krugerrands basically like she did all this and at the end of it the sort of universe was like you know what no none of this from you i don't know it just feels very similar to the spirits being like you know what no we're not going to yeah. give advice to the living. I wonder if someone has actually made a proof for this, but it does seem like rabbinic argument and beliefs would lead to it's impossible to fuck with time for humans to fuck with time. Mm, I see. Yeah. Like time travel, not possible. Like that seems pretty, pretty Jewish to me. Huh. I'm not sure because it seems like divination is possible. Right? Like, the ghosts do give him accurate information. Yeah, about the future. But he can't go back in time and mess with the time. Right. Yeah, so I just felt like there was this connection. And so I went to look at just, like, what's up with talking to the dead. And I brought this Ibn Ezra commentary, which is a commentary on Deuteronomy 18.11. And the verse reads, Lo yimatsei bach ma'avir b'no ubito ba'esh kosim k'samim ma'onein so you shall not have one among you who consigns their son or daughter to the fire, who is a fortune teller, a soothsayer, a diviner, or a sorcerer, one who casts spells, or one who consults ghosts or familiar spirits, or one who asks questions of the dead. So, even Ezra says, ask questions of the dead, like those who go into a graveyard 
and take a bone of a dead person, through mental concentration they fall into a frenzy, upon which they see a simulacrum of various objects while dreaming, or even when awake. All of these practices are abominations. The true way is that the heart of man should be ever devoted to his creator. Whenever man relies on his own crafts to learn the truth or predict the future, and not on God, he is therefore spiritually imperfect as well as mistaken. Let him who wishes to inquire, inquire of God through a prophet. For this reason, we come forthwith to the section of a prophet in your midst. This is Joshua as evidence to the pronouncement, to him you shall listen, which is from later on in Torah, and the subsequent confirmation that the children of Israel listened to him. Moreover, we find no other prophet besides Joshua who entered with Israel into the land. However, this verse also presents a paradigm for all future prophets who might arise after the time of Moshe. So the crucial part there for me was basically just like Ibn Ezra's general approach that the reason we shouldn't do divination is because we should be relying on God. And he says elsewhere, when he's talking about astrology, he talks about like, basically, it's fine for everyone else. It's fine for all the nations to do astrology and divination and stuff, just not us, because we have basically like a special relationship with God. So like, that's why we are forbidden from doing that stuff. Mm. We have like alternative means that we should rely on instead. That's frustrating because that stuff sounds fun. I know. He actually says it's either him or the Ramban. I don't remember which one of them says this, but one of them says like, for this reason, the nation of Israel does have a legitimate complaint that they're not allowed access to these means. That's funny. We really want to do the magic stuff. But yeah, I don't know. This whole thing just felt very like feels parallel in a certain way that like Nadia is like, oh, I'm going to like figure out the answer through doing all this time travel stuff when the answer in all cases is for her to like just be present with what's going on in her life already, which feels like a parallel to like relying on God and faith and stuff like that. I don't know. It just feels like Nadia is like in this same position of being like, oh, I can like do all these tricks to like prevent harm befalling my crops to prevent the Krugerrands from being lost instead of just accepting like what's going to be lost is going to be lost. And like you have people to take care of now, you know? Yeah. Now that makes me think of Chez. I wonder if he's supposed to be a symbol of what happens if you do live in the past too much mm. or, or don't right. focus on the present. The whole Coney Island quote was, it was at the forefront of his mind, you know, right? it just right. came out. So it's, Something that he's thinking about a lot. You could say having the if-only thought is a type of sorcery that maybe we shouldn't be mm, engaging, engaging in. Engaging in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If only I didn't live in this time of spiritual ennui. Uh. <laughs> Our show is just me tricking you into <laughs> thinking about your own problems. Oh my god. It is. It is. Uh. Michael, every doubt is an opportunity for the practice of faith. You know that. Or an opportunity to take a nap. Think about it that way. <laughs> or could sometimes a nap could be the perfect embodiment of faith, you know? <sighs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think we've wandered enough all over the hills and dales today. I do want to bring one last thing. A patron posted in a comment this incredibly wonderful quote relevant to our last episode where we talked about theologian Paul Tillich, who mm -hmm. originated the phrase ground of all being as a form of talking about God. Big thank you to this dear patron. It reads, 
Mary Daly reminds us of Hannah Tillich's memory of her late husband, the theologian Paul Tillich, and how he was unable to confront the immediate reality of his life, drawn as it was into sadomasochistic practices and bondage, and which he replaced by theo-ideological abstractions. What is to be condemned and regretted is not that Tillich was a sadomasochist, but the fact that he did not find the courage to be out of the closet about his sexuality. A sadomasochist theologian, for instance, reflecting on an issue of importance in his life, as in the life of others. Our difficulty with Tillich is his lack of integrity, and not necessarily his developed taste for bondage practices, which were probably shared by many other academic colleagues, fellow priests, and everyday fellow Christians. Systematic theologians such as Tillich are representative of the millions of Christian people struggling to remain in their own sexual closets and in their own preferential beds while building their identities without sharing their sexual stories and even condemning them in their writings. They keep pretending that friendship is not and can never be a lustful business, and that the chaotic nature of sexuality does not belong to the sphere of interest of theology except to condemn it. What? <laughs> so that was, I just thought that that was really cool to learn that like Paul Tillich was into BDSM and couldn't deal with his own predilections. And to that last line, the chaotic nature of sexuality does not belong to the sphere of interest of theology except to condemn it. I just thought that was really great summary of, of many people's approach to religion and particularly to theology that there's like this bifurcation between the messy business of life and sexuality and like abstractions about God as the ground of all being. Mm. I don't have any conclusions to draw about it, but I didn't want everyone to miss out on that incredible quote. So thank you, dear listener. My reaction to that is everyone should have missed out. <laughs> what are we doing spilling Paul Tillage's laundry out on the floor? Well, it's done been spilled now. Yeah, that's true. Well, sorry, Paul. Or not. Was that his wife that said that? Yeah, his wife's uh, in her memoir. Oh, okay. Well, you know, if the wife's going to say it, then we can say it too. <laughs> That's the law. Thank you all so much for joining us on this journey through ennui and doubt and death and mystery. Live in the moment. Go. Live in the moment, I guess. We'll be back next week with some other bullshit. Thank you all so much for your continued support. We will continue trying to be worthy of it. And we'll talk to you next week. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. <laughs>